I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody. This is the week five episode of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Slamini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Thanks for stopping by again this week. We have a really good show ahead. It's kind of a mix of past and present on this particular show. In the second quarter, our guest is Jets legend Marty Lyons, who has written a new book, about Jets' history and his life, and really, they're one and the same. Marty's been with the organization as a player and broadcaster for the last 40 years. So, like I said, one and the same. I've known him for 30 years, and you won't meet a nicer guy. Looking forward to having Marty in the second quarter. Let's see, this was a long weekend for the Jets, a weekend of no games after the loss to Denver on Thursday night. So, me, I just hung around the house, did some yard work, little pumpkin picking, played some tennis, and of course, watched some football. The last time we talked about the Jets, since then, nothing's really changed. They still have no wins, and Adam Gase is still the coach. If you recall on last week's podcast, I said I thought there was a, probably a 65-35 chance that Gase survives the Denver game no matter what happens. And actually, as we got closer to game time, I actually think that number was much closer to 100. I don't think he was in any danger in that game. I I truly believe ownership is going to give him a chance to try to right the ship here. To me, it's more like a six-game audition now because they have their bye week in six games. So they're getting healthier. They're getting some players back this week, uh, eligible to come off IR, Le'Veon Bell, Denzel Mims. You know, maybe you get Rashad Perriman back. So maybe for the next six games, Gase has uh, some of or most of his weapons on offense. If you can call them weapons, you know, that leaves a lot to be desired. So I think he's good through the bye week. And the only problem now is that he may not have Sam Darnold. So now it's Joe Flacco, possibly. So it's just a Jets luck, right? I mean, they start to get some of their guys back and then the quarterback gets hurt. Uh, I know you guys out there want Gase gone. They wanted him gone last year. I just don't think it would have solved anything by firing him after four games. Uh, What are you going to promote? Greg Williams? Based on the way the defense has been playing? What kind of message would that send? Uh, Not a very good one. So whether you like it or not, I think you're going to get Gase here for the rest of the way, or at least these six games, unless something totally egregious happens over the next few weeks, I think he's going to get a chance to fix this. You know, right now, I think one of the biggest issues surrounding the team is injuries and the way the team handling or handling those injuries. And I want to dive right into that here. Let's talk about, first of all, with Sam Darnold. My sources tell me it's an AC joint sprain in his right shoulder. That's a fancy way of saying it's a shoulder separated. Um, I spoke to a a friend of mine, an orthopedist, uh, Dr. Eric Freeman, who's actually uh, on Long Island, works out of the South Island Orthopedics 
center. He says it's likely a grade one sprain, which is the most mildest form. He said typical treatment is two weeks rest and then ease back into playing. Now you're wondering, how the heck did Sam finish the game on Thursday night? Well, in all likelihood, from the medical people I spoke to who are not affiliated with the team, including Dr. Freeman, they probably got a pain-killing ejection when he went into the locker room and came out, and he looked fine. He had a couple of balls where he threw the ball 50 yards, so he didn't seem to be affected in any way. The problem is you can't shoot him up for practice every day. You know, that would be unhealthy. They could do it on Sunday against the Cardinals, but... You know, it's a pain tolerance issue during the week. And Sam, the team feels, is the kind of guy who needs practice. If this were a 10-year veteran at quarterback, maybe he could skip practice and play on Sunday. But they really want to get Sam some practice reps. He needs to see things. He needs those reps. So my gut feeling is that you're going to see Joe Flacco on Sunday. But, you know, I talked to another doc, Dr. David Chow, a former team doctor with the uh, – you know, out on the West Coast, he has a, a, a Twitter handle and a website, Pro Football Doc. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. He thinks, medically speaking, Donald will be okay to play on Sunday. Now, it, there's some gray area because it's like, you know, do you want to give him a chance to get fully healthy? Do you just want to let him a chance to catch his breath? You know, he's been struggling lately. So there are a lot of different factors that go into it. And uh, me, personally, I am not a doctor, but I would not play him this week. Um, you know, why chance it? It's an 0-4 season so far. They're not making the playoffs. He's still your franchise quarterback until we find out otherwise if they draft Trevor Lawrence or whatever. He's still your guy. He's only 23. Why mess him up even further? I would err on the side of caution and rest him this week. But I think Wednesday will be a very, very critical day. If he's not practicing, then I think you'll probably see Joe Flacco on Sunday uh, now, this Mackay Becton situation is very interesting to me. I don't agree with what the Jets did. You know, he went into the game with a left shoulder injury, and they had him as their quote-unquote emergency left tackle. Well, he wasn't really the emergency, as we found out, because once Chuma Adoga got hurt after four plays, they skipped over Connor McDermott and put Mackay in the game. He lasted 16 plays before it became too painful and he had to come out. Gase insists that they didn't make it any worse by putting him out there. And so there's always shades of gray with that. My source tells me that it's a capsule injury. Capsule injuries, I'm told, means there's very likely a labral tear in his shoulder. Capsule injuries and shoulder injuries are kind of very close to each other and one in the same. As one doctor told me, it's like Coke and Pepsi. So there is a chance that there is a labral tear there. Offensive linemen can play with labral tears. Uh, Brian Winters has done it in the past with the Jets, former Jet. Last year, Kalechi Yosemite had a labral tear. He did not want to did not want to play, and we had an entire injury grievance and a very ugly situation. Um, so I think Dr. Chow brought up a very interesting point. The fact that it's Becton's left shoulder is concerning because he's the left tackle. That's his outside shoulder. He needs to extend to block those edge rushers like Bradley Chubb on Thursday. So that's a different ball game. The left shoulder, outside shoulder, much different than the right shoulder. I think the Jets should have looked at that and realized he could have really gotten not only himself hurt, 
but he could have endangered his quarterback as well. Again, outside shoulder, a huge factor in this decision. They put him out there anyway. And to me, you know, now you're starting, you have this player who might be the best player on the team for the next few years, and you're starting off on the wrong foot in this relationship. By doing that, you're risking further injury based on the people I talk to. And I just can't believe they put him out there. And uh, I think the Jets, I mean, this happens, has happened before. It happened with Osemele. And, uh, you know, this year, Le'Veon Bell went out with a hamstring injury. Gase put him back in. Gase took the responsibility. So the Jets have an issue there. And I think the team doctor needs to step up and be, be a little bit more assertive in situations like that because you cannot leave this in the hands of the coaches. The coaches want to win. But the players have to be protected. You know, the players have to be protected. Not only if you're Makai Becton, it could be whether you're the 53rd guy on the roster and the Jets did not do a good job of protecting their player. To me, that's a big red flag. And um, two situations to watch going forward. Darnold, who I think they should rest this week, but again, I think that's somewhat up in the air. And then with Makai Becton, Again, a left shoulder injury, something to watch out for. Uh, I think they made the wrong decision against the uh, Broncos. We'll see going forward if they've learned any lessons here. And I'd like to welcome in our special guest on Flight Deck. You know him as a broadcaster, as the Jets color analyst on ESPN Radio. But he was also an All-American at Alabama, had a great career with the Jets, a member of the Ring of Honor. And, you know, I've, I'm proud to say I've known Marty for about 30 years, and he's been with the Jets for 40-something years, which is really hard to believe. Marty Lyons, thank you so much for being uh, our guest this week. Rich, my pleasure. Marty has a new book out. It's called If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the New York Jets Sideline Locker Room and Press Box. It's by Marty with Lou Sahadi, and I've read it already. I, if you're a Jet fan, you have to read it. It's really like a history of the Jets and, and also a history of Marty Lyons, <laughs> all, all tied into one. What was the idea for the book, Marty? What made you want to go into the book uh, writing industry? Well, you know as well as I do, Rich, it's so hard to be a writer to begin with. And, you know, uh, when I met with the company out of Chicago Triumph, I said, you know what? Um, I really have a great deal of love, admiration for the New York Jets, but I don't want to write a book about the Jets. I said, the only way that I'm willing to share some of my stories is if I am able to do it as a crossover book to make sure people understand that besides being a football player, there's more to Marty Lyons than that. And I said, I'd like to pay tribute to the kids from the foundation and make it a crossover book. So you tell a story about the Jets, but then you take, um, you take the readers inside the life of a, a child that's terminally ill, inside the life of a of a parent that has a sick child. What is it really like? Because most of us that have healthy children, unfortunately, we, we don't take time to think about that. And Foundation, we've, uh, we're celebrating 38 years, so 42 years with the Jets, 38 years with the Foundation. Uh, and I think the best way to describe the book is one person said, you know, I found myself laughing at times. I found myself crying at times. But at the end of the book, I found myself inspired. And you know what, Rich, if you can get three things like that out of a book, then just maybe it's a good book. Yeah. And, and I should mention this because this is the most important thing. All proceeds 
go to the Marty Lyons Foundation. And as Marty mentioned, it's been in existence for 38 years. And for those who don't know, Marty grants uh, wishes to terminally ill children. He's had over 8,000 wishes granted and they've raised, this is mind boggling to me, but you've raised over $35 million and you're in existence in 13 different states. I mean, those are numbers that, in my opinion, are more important than like your tackle totals and your sack totals, because those are the, the numbers that are of the legacy of a, of a person. Well, I would agree with you, Rich, and I think that when you look back at it, you know, I started the foundation, I was only 25 years old. I didn't have no money. I had uh, the teammates, especially Kenny Shroy. I had Leon Hess was involved with uh, the start. But I really, I reached out to the people here of the tri-state area, and they, they believed in the mission of a 25-year-old professional athlete, and they got behind it. And the first thing that I learned was from a guy named Bill Gibney. He said, you know, this is not going to be a one-and-done foundation. He goes, you have to make a commitment. And he said, if you make a commitment, it will work. And over the 38 years, I found that the word commitment simply means, you know, when you don't have time, you find time. When you say you're going to do something, do it. And when somebody needs to talk to you, you're there to listen, but you don't ask for anything in return. So it's been very, very rewarding to, uh, for myself and my family. Absolutely. Um, okay, now I got to ask you some tough questions here. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. I know you, you bleed green more than anyone maybe I've ever met, but the team is 0-4 right now. And so, I mean, this is a obviously a bitterly disappointing start for Jet fans. What is your take? Do you have any hope for this team this year? Well, I really do. I have hope, but I, I got to look at what has happened, what has transpired in 2020 with the coronavirus, the pandemic. You go out in free agents and, and uh, Joe Douglas, he builds a new offensive line. Then the training camps were shut down. No preseason games. Everybody's trying to learn about everybody. And then all of a sudden you have to start the season and you go up to Buffalo. You don't play well. Somebody's going to win the game. Somebody's going to lose the game. You're 0-1. Then you come back, first play against the 49ers. They hit you for an 80-yard touchdown run. And you go to Indianapolis. You know, you have two pick six. You don't win that one. And then last week was disappointing because they had a chance to beat, uh, you know, the Broncos, but they didn't play smart football. You know, you have too many penalties. You have too many drop passes. Everybody's pointing the finger at Adam Gase. Everybody's pointing it also at Sam. But I think it's time for these players to come, kind of point the finger at themselves and say, what do I have to do better to give us a better chance of winning? This is a, this is a year that's going to challenge each and every one of us. But accountability has to come into play. Your coaches can put you in the best spot, come up with the biggest plays, but you got to go out there and execute. And I just think, you know, at 0-4, you got to go out and have fun, Rich. You know what? The game's never going to change. But it's hard to have fun when you're 0-4. But somehow you got to put the 0-4 behind you and say, hey, it's a 12-game season. Let's go out there. Whatever happens during the year, at the end of the year, Coaches are going to be replaced. Players may be replaced. You can't worry about things you can't control, but you can control the way you play. Now, you were always known as a fiery player. And one time, it's mentioned in the book, you put your fist through a glass window, trying, getting fired up before a playoff game against the Raiders. So 
looking at this defense, you know, speaking as a guy who, you know, who thrived on emotion and, and adrenaline and, and intensity, do you think there's a lack of fire on this defense? You know, no Jamal Adams this year. He was always the fire plug. Do you think they're missing that? I don't, I don't know, Rich. I think it's kind of hard because, you know, you know as well as I do, we're not down on the field. We're not in the locker rooms. We're not in the press conference. I do know this, before that game on Thursday night, I would have broke the table. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. That table would have been broken. That energy would have been real in the locker room. But then you take that out into the field, and you're looking for the crowd. You're looking for the fans to get behind you. And it's so depressing because there is none. So the only fans you have are your teammates. The people that you trust, the people that you depend on, You've got to have them involved in the game. And I think that right now, you know, you make the, the defense is out on the field. They change. The offense goes out there. The defense, go over, make all your corrections, but get up on the sidelines. Yeah. Cheer your teammates on. If something goes wrong, you know what? What means a lot is when you pat them on the back and say, hey, don't worry. We got your back covered. And I don't see that. Mm. Interesting. What, whose fault is that? Is that just, like you said, players have to take more onus on themselves? I think I, You're exactly right, Rich. Players have to take it, and it has, to, it has to come across as real. You can't paint the picture and then not go out there and play. That's the hardest thing about when you're on IR and you're not part of the team and you're not out there at the practices. You know, you start to become invisible. And I, I, know, I know how that feels because – my last year with the Jets, I tore my bicep. They put me on injury reserve. We had a young defensive line. I was trying to help them, trying to coach them. But then there had to be a degree of separation because you had a defensive line coach in Greg Robinson. He didn't want me to tell the players what to do. That was his job. So then all of a sudden, you know what? They, the games kept moving on. And as a player on injury reserve, you're responsible to get yourself healthy enough so that you can possibly make a return. But at the same sense, you're invisible because nobody can stop. They're going to say hi to you. Hey, how you doing? But that's about it. You're not involved anymore. And uh, it's really hard to motivate yourself. I mean, look at a guy like Avery Williamson. He was the man a few years ago before the Jets signed C.J. Mosley. Now, who would have thought that C.J. Mosley would have opted out this year and not play? So now you lose – Jamal Adams, and you lose C.J. Mosley. There's not anybody on that roster that can take their place both in performance and motivation. Now, you were on a team in 1981 that started 0-3 and, and rallied to make the playoffs that year. And I'm curious, so you've been in this position as a player. Um, like, what – that team was really good, though. That 81 team had, had the birth of the New York Sack Exchange and some really good young offensive players like Wesley Walker and Freeman McNeil. Do you see any chance – I mean, do you see any parallels between that team and this team? <clears throat> no, not really, because I, I, I can identify with the players back there in 81. You know, we were 0-3. And if you even look at the point differentials, with this year's Jets 0-3, they were 57 points differential we were 54 and our fourth game we were getting ready to play the Houston Oilers and they came in and they they were known as the bad boys they were going to light us up and I remember telling everybody 
doesn't matter. It's our house. They want to fight, we fight. They want to do this, we do that. But we're not going to back down. And we ended up winning. The next week, we went and we played Miami. We tied. And then, you know, we won eight out of the last ten games or nine out of the last ten games, and we just got on the roll. That's what the Jets have to do now, Rich. They have to win one game so that they can feel good about themselves. If they don't win a game, you know what? It keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I tell you, the most disappointing for, for me, uh, the game against Denver. At the end of the game, you see the Denver Broncos. They, they've already won the game. They're two scores up. You want to throw the ball out. And I see a guy like Steve McClendon go back there and get an unnecessary roughness out of frustration. I know Steve McClendon. That is not the type of player he is. And what's going to happen is all these opposing coaches are going to meet with the officials before the game. And they're going to say, hey, protect our quarterback, protect our players. These guys are known to come in and take late shots. And now you're going to get labeled. Because you can't tell me that the sack that they had on, Steve, uh, on Sam Darnold shouldn't have been a flag the way the defender picked him up, swung him down, and he landed on his shoulder. But, Rich, they don't care about an 0-3 team. They don't care about an 0-4 team. If you saw the penalty last night on Patrick Mahomes running out of bounds, barely got touched, he, you know, he falls down. They throw another 15 yards. Yeah. It's just the way it is. That's the nature of the game. But I can tell the team is getting frustrated because Steve McClendon is better than that. Yeah. I was stunned by it because Steve is such a – he's a smart player. He, he doesn't have that in his DNA. And right. then to see him do that, I mean, he'll, he'll probably get fined, I would think. And I agree with you. I think uh, the, the linebacker should have been – who sacked Sam should have been penalized. He could still end up getting fined. We'll find out soon. But I agree with you on all that stuff. I mean, yeah, the I Jets think. have more roughing the passer penalties right now than sacks, that which is which is just hard to believe. You know? Yeah, I think they got six. Yeah, uh, and I don't know how many they had last week, but and and you know what? Every player should be held responsible for that. I don't think the first one on Quinnen should have been called. You know, you work your way back there. Your your weight on top of a quarterback cannot be unnecessary roughness. What am I supposed to do between the time I start to rush quarterback and by the time I hit him, lose 60 pounds? You know, you just yeah. can't do that. Yeah. And you've got to realize that it, there was no intent on, <clears throat> excuse me, on his side to hurt the quarterback. But still, they threw a flag out because the, the opposing coaches are making it known to the officials. How do you think you guys would have – because the New York Sack Exchange was known for terrorizing quarterbacks. You guys put up some crazy sack numbers. How do you think you guys – the game was different then. You know, you were allowed to do more. The rules were more liberal then. How do you think you guys, you and Mark and Joe Klecko and Abdul Salam, would have responded if they were calling fouls like that, like they're calling now? You know what, Rich, I don't know because you're, you said it. The game has changed, and they're protecting the quarterback now. It's more of an offensive game. Uh, I think that we would have managed it, but uh, you probably would have seen more penalties on, on the front four or the front seven. Um, the game has changed, so is the athletes. So I don't think it you know, really 
hard to compare the 2020 team to the 81 team or the 82 team. You know, you're talking about 39 years ago. That's a, that's a long time. Wow, it is it is a long time. Uh, just wanted to ask you about uh, the SAC exchange and, uh, you know, something that was, uh, uh, you know, it will live in Jets lore for a long, for a long, long time. Um, I just want to ask you about each guy, and I want you to say, like, the first thing that pops into your head. You know, just like a, a sentence or two about each guy. Um, kind of a word association game. Okay. But, uh, like, Abdul Salam. He was the peacemaker. He kept us all on the same page. You know, he could balance Mark with Joe and myself. Hmm. Okay. Joe Klecko. Hall of Famer, without a doubt. You know, not just for his performance, but his leadership, Hall of Famer. Hmm. Mark Astineau. Probably one of the most talented athletes I've ever played with. He wow. had the speed. He had the strength. Uh, of course, he beat to a different drum, but that's okay. But probably one of the most talented athletes I've ever played with. How about this guy from Alabama, Marty Lyons? <laughs> I, I, I believe I was a, a good teammate, a blue-collar worker. Was I the most talented? No. But I believe I got the most out of the talent that I had. I don't know if the younger fans know this about that group, but, you know, it, the personalities were so diverse in that group. And Mark, like you said, was – was kind of beating, going to his own beat at that point, and maybe still is in some respects. Was you guys get along okay, or was it was he just like a, a loner? Was he separate from the group, or how was that dynamic? Well, you know what, I, I go back to Walt Michaels, and he kept us all together. And he he had a simple rule. He said, you know what, I don't care if you guys don't get along. I don't care if you guys don't socialize during the week, but come game time, you guys will respect one another. So it was that type of message. I remember sitting there when he called all four of us in, the, in his office. And he said, if you guys don't get along, and he started pointing. He goes, I'll get rid of you. 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 And went around and said, I'll get rid of all four of you. Right. But you're going to respect one another. And I, I, I think. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Everybody knew that uh, we didn't really socialize a lot on the, you know, Monday through Saturday. Uh, I hung out with Joe quite a bit. You know, we, we did quite a bit together. So there was a, a friendship, a bond that was built when we played that is still in place for today, which I totally respect. And, you know, even Mark now, I try to help out, you know, Mark as much as possible. And, I think if we could both turn back the clock, maybe we would have both done things a little bit different. But you're talking about we were 22, 23 yeah. years old, Rich. I mean, and we were at the prime of our careers, and we had the sack exchange, and then we went to the AFC Championship game. And you never thought the world was going to, you know, end. The game of football was always going to be something special. And for me, you know, that week in March where my oldest son was born on March 4th, my dad suddenly dies of a heart attack on March 8th. A little boy that has a big brother, too, died on March 10th. 
you know, God changed my world like yeah. a snap of the finger. And it was a reminder that, hey, you know what? There's more in life than the game of football. I've put you in a position where you can make a difference. I put you in New York. New York was one of the last places I thought I'd get drafted, right? So I get drafted in the media capital of the world. I come to New York. The team is not good in 79, but we started to, to turn the corner. We started to get good leadership. We started to get good quality plays. Then all of a sudden you have the sack exchange, and then you have an AFC championship game. But then God says, hey, you know what? Stop. Stop thinking you're a football player. Stop thinking that that's the most important thing in your life. And, you know, unfortunately for me, that week changed me. And I kept trying to find an answer of what I was doing wrong in life that God would do this. And the more I asked why, the more I came up with the answer of I was actually saying, why me? Not, why not somebody else? I can't handle it. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you realize life's not going to stop for any one of us. And that's why I started the foundation. You know, you speak of real life problems. I mean, I, I was talking to Mark Gastineau about a year ago when he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And he said one of the first people to call him was you. And, you know, you called him and offered help in, in any fashion. And Mark said he was, you know, he was really touched by that. And it seems like no matter, you know, how guys drift apart over the years and maybe do their different, you know, live in their separate lives, it seems like, you know, when something like that happens, the bond of being a teammate, you know, comes to the forefront. It really does. There's a brotherhood. And no matter what happened, you know, 30 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, I was 32. You know, you, you, go, you get older, you get wiser. And you, you wish you wouldn't have said something, you wish you wouldn't have done something, but you can't go back and change it. That's why I always tell people, you know what, we, we've got to learn from our mistakes from yesterday. We got to live for today and we got to hope for a better tomorrow. If we can do those three things, then Rich, we're making the steps in the right direction. And we have to instill that same type of values in our children because this world's not going to change maybe why we're here, but it certainly will have a better opportunity to change underneath the leadership of our children and our grandchildren because somehow we got stuck. We got, we got compl uh, complacent in the things that we wanted to do. And now the 2020 year has brought everything to the top and it's the awareness, it's the education that we all have to say, hey, let's do our part. Let's make this a better world. Yeah, this has been a year we'll never forget. You know, what's it like for you, I mean, doing the games because, you know, for the away games, you're doing them from the Jet facility, correct? You and Bob and your partner, for a longtime partner, are, are not at the away games, as am I. I am not at the away games either, uh, only home games. So what's it like being a color analyst when you're not at the game? Well, it's kind of hard, but Bob and I have a great relationship, a great chemistry. We watch it on TV, uh, and it's kind of different. Uh, I think that coming to MetLife Stadium and not seeing the tailgaters, you go through the COVID screening, you go up to the press box, and then the game gets ready to start and there's no fans. It's depressing. It really is. That's why I'm saying that it takes special players this year to be able to motivate themselves inside that locker room and carry that energy outside, knowing that 
there are no fans. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very depressing. It's hard. And I give the, the, give the credit, give credit to the players that are able to do it. And right now you still have a young Jet team. They're still trying to get familiar with one another. There's, you see so many injuries around the league yeah. because there's no preseason games. You're not in yeah. football shape. How many, how many people are getting the hamstrings, the knees, everything that if you had had a normal training camp, you might have been able to prevent that. Yeah. What was the worst? I, I think in the book I read, like one year you were playing with both, both shoulders harnessed up and, yeah. you know, you're, you're taking pain-killing shots before the game at halftime just to play. Was that like the most – I mean, talk about playing hurt. Was that – is that what was the worst case of playing hurt you ever? Well, I think that was play, that was uh, one of the worst case because I was in a double harness and I got the shots before the game and at halftime and then after the game. I think when we made that run to the AFC Championship game, I had a pulled hamstring, and everybody says you can't shoot a muscle up, you know, because all you're going to do is tear it in half if if you're going to tear it. And um, we were getting ready to play Cincinnati. And I knew that uh, the only way that I could play is to get the injection in the hamstring. And Pepper Burris and Bob Reese, our trainers, de developed this uh, technique. They shot up my hamstring. They put a bumper at the bottom of the tear, a bumper at the top of the tear, taped it down, and then taped me from the middle of my back all the way down my leg underneath my heel. And I said to the doctor, I said, is there anything that can happen to me? And he said, the only thing that could happen to you is the possibility of you tearing your hamstring in half, and then we'll sew it back together. And I took the chance. I said, you know what? I may never have this opportunity again. And if this is the, my only means of being able to play the game, then I'll take that chance. And, you know, now at the age of 63, I, I have some uh, – lingering moments where you know my leg might go numb or your sciatic nerve is bad but you know it's one of those things that people say well if you had to do it over again would you and I said yeah without a doubt mm -hmm. you know I paid the price now for something that I was willing to do 30 years ago 40 years ago mm -hmm. I remember that game I mean that was long before I was covering the Jets but I remember watching it that was the game you guys beat Cincinnati and Freeman McNeil yeah. had, had such a legendary game. I don't know the exact number. I think it was about 200 yards or he rushed for. And um, wow, that, that's a great story just on what you went through to play in that game. Wow. I can't even, can't even imagine that. You know, and, and, and you know what, Rich, and people go, well, you know, better football through, you know, chemistry. The, there was nobody that forced me from the Jets organization to take it. You know, what they did was they would bring in the needle and they'd show it to you and they go, hey, if you want to play, and then they put it down in front of you. Mm -hmm. And then, then it's just like life. Life is about opportunities and choices. Mm -hmm. I saw the opportunity for me to play. I made the choice, and I don't hold anybody responsible for it but me. Wow. And you look great, Marty. Uh, and – you're feeling good. I know you had a little bit of a health scare a few years ago uh, with with the stroke, and but you sound great on the radio. You sound great now. It's and knock on wood, everything good. Yeah, everything is good. The kids are doing well, and you know it's been a challenging year. Uh, you know, working remotely from from home for about twelve weeks give you 
gave you the opportunity to reflect. Uh, my youngest son, Luke, came home. He's an aerospace engineer down uh, in uh, Fort Worth. And you kind of look at it and go, wow, here, here's your son that's 24 years old. When would you get to spend eight weeks with him? Mm -hmm. And they go, ne never. Right. So, you know, during the pandemic, you could take everything that uh, happened that was negative and of course, losing over 200,000 people, I mean, that's shameful. Yeah. And to me, we lost part of the nation because we lost those individuals that would always start the story, I remember when. Yeah. And when you start the story, I remember when, you're talking about history. Yeah. And to see so many innocent lives taken away and, um, you know, it's, it's been a sad world, but I think uh, it's been a world that now we can all reflect on and and try to change why we're, why we're here. Hmm. Well, for the Jet fans out there listening, uh, the book is called If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the New York Jets Sideline Locker Room and Press Box with Marty Lyons and uh, his author, Lou Sahadi. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you're into the Jets, I mean, because this is, and there's a lot of stuff that we didn't even get into, like funny anecdotal stuff with Marty that I, I didn't even know about. And I thought I knew a lot about the Jets. And I learned a lot by reading it. And as I mentioned earlier, all the proceeds go to the Marty Lyons Foundation, which is just the, the greatest thing. And, and so I wish Marty well and thank him so much, Marty, for, for joining us this week on Flight Deck. Oh, Rich. Well, thank you, ma'am. We've been friends for a long time. We'll continue to do the same. And I hope to see you at a ball game soon, maybe this weekend. <laughs> you got it. Stay well, my friend. And welcome to the third quarter. Thanks again for so many insightful Twitter questions. There's a lot to dive into here today, and we're going to start it off in the leadoff spot with Brian of Nazareth. He asks, did the Jets seriously consider removing Gase last week? If they did, what stopped them? Contract, loss of uh, lack of uh, suitable replacement, cold feet, as I said in the first quarter, Brian, you know, I think they're just going to let Adam ride this out and see if he can get the team back on the right track. And I don't think, in retrospect, there was any way that Christopher Johnson was going to pull the plug two weeks after calling him a brilliant offensive mind. Next one, at Dick Johnson, 242-778-49. I would love to know the significance behind those numbers, but anyway... Dick asks, will the Jets ever put a man in motion this season? Great question. I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. They simply do not believe in motioning players or shifting players on offense. I looked this up this week. Uh, they have run the most plays in the league with no motion. 199 plays with absolutely no motion. Adam Gase just does not believe in it. I think he's missing something there because you can create matchup advantages, create um, confusion on the defense. They don't want to go there. I don't get it. At Matt Romano 19, Matt's question is, uh, Joe Douglas has called Sam Darnold a franchise quarterback. He also said uh, Jamal Adams was one of the reasons he wanted to be with the Jets. Now Jamal is gone. Do you think Joe Douglas still has the uh, same, still feels the same way about Sam Darnold. Well, you know, obviously I, I think he's starting to have some doubts. And I, I can tell you this though, and I wrote about this in my Sunday notes column on ESPN.com in a, in a book just released by Brian Billick 
He quotes Joe Douglas as saying he rated Darnold as the number one quarterback on the Philly draft board in the 2018 draft, ahead of Mayfield, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson. So obviously he had a high feeling about him then. Does he have the same conviction now? I mean, it's been, what, 20 games with Darnold? He obviously is starting to have some doubts. We'll see what happens at the end of the year. Now, the next one is at Trash Bags 9. Uh, who could the Jets get back if they, tr- what could the Jets get back if they trade Darnold in the offseason? I know this is going to disappoint some, but I placed a call around the league just to get some input. I don't think Darnold would bring back anything better than a third round pick. Um, that might seem like pennies on the dollar, but that's the fact. You know, a quarterback with mediocre stats after three years is not going to bring back you know, a big score in terms of draft picks. And, okay, now we have one from at Biscotti. Mikey, do you think 0-16 would make uh, Christopher Johnson and Woody take a hard look in the mirror, finally letting the GM pick the coach and change the organizational structure? Uh, well, Biscotti, I mean, if they haven't taken a hard mirror a look in the mirror to this point, then something's wrong. I don't think they need to be 0-16 to do that. Uh, certainly, if it's 0-16, the entire operation would have to be, I, I think, torn down. And no, I don't think they would fire Douglas, but everything else, I think, would come down around him. You'd have to reevaluate everything. Look, if they go 3-13, and 13, I think you need to reevaluate everything. And I would love to see them change the organizational structure. I've railed about this in the past. I don't like the current setup. The thing is, are you going to give the full power to a GM coming off a 3-13 and 13 year, you know, that's a tough one too. It's a very, very tough decision. At skip 84, what does, Gar- uh, what does Douglas and Gase have against Bilal Powell and Demarius Thomas? Nothing. They just don't think they're good enough. I, I think they're older players. You don't want to keep building your depth with older players. You know, ideally you want younger players who can play on special teams and, you know, bring some fresh legs to the operation. And neither Bilal nor Demarius Thomas, who had terrific careers, they're both over 30. Neither one of them would bring any special teams element whatsoever. And now with the COVID protocols, to bring an outside player to your team, you know, it takes several days to go through the COVID testing and get him, you know, before you can get him on the practice field. And so they're going with younger players. I mean, look, I'd rather have Jeff Smith at wide receiver than Demarius Thomas. Jeff Smith has some upside. I would want to see him play over an older guy whose, you know, best days are clearly gone. At J underscore Bird 44, based on your experience with the Jets organization, can you describe any qualitative differences that you've observed between Parcells, Rex Ryan, and Adam Gase in terms of the overall culture? Really, really good question, Jaybird. Uh, here's what I would say to that, and this is based on personal observation and also talking to players. Under Parcells, well, let's start with Rex. Rex was just a lot of fun to be around. Players enjoyed being in the building. It was loose. Every player was encouraged to be himself. Under Bill Parcells, they were walking on eggshells. Every day, There was competition and you feared for your job, but you learned a lot of football and you were prepared to play on Sunday. Uh, 
one player who actually played for Parcells for a long time told me this, and this is a direct quote. I hated playing for Parcells, but I'm glad I did because he made me better, end quote. That's Bill Parcells. Adam Gase, well, it's not fun like Rex, and I don't think the players, for the most part, are getting better like they were under Parcells. So it's really just not anything right now. There's really, like, no culture. And I know they're trying to build it, but they got a long way to go. And the last question from at Challenge God, G-A-W-D, God. What was the reasoning for not re-signing Robbie Anderson and betting on Brashad Perryman? Did Chad Alexander influence the decision? Chad, of course, is the personnel director, was with Baltimore when they drafted Perryman, but so was Joe Douglas, by the way. So I think it was a combination deal there. Clearly, letting Robbie go looks like a really bad decision. It's probably the worst decision Joe Douglas has made so far. Robbie's already got, I think he's averaging 100 yards receiving per game. Perryman has barely been on the field. I don't even know if he's going to play Sunday against Arizona. Uh, You know, the Jets saw Robbie as a $10 million player. He ended up signing for two years for uh, $20 million, getting $12 million in the first year. I thought it was a reasonable contract. They could have paid the $12 million this year and kept Robbie, give Sam Darnold his go-to guy, and then draft a wide receiver like a Denzel Mims and build from there. But instead, they downgraded at the position because they wanted to save money, and now they're paying the price. This is the fourth quarter, folks, and I can promise you, and I think you'd all agree that our fourth quarters have been a lot more entertaining than the Jets' fourth quarters. Well, it's Cardinals week, and it's hard to believe the Jets and Cardinals have played only nine times in their franchise's histories. Incredible. And, you know, some of their games have been just really all-time clunkers. I mean, a few years ago, 2016, the Jets went into a primetime game in Glendale and just laid an absolute egg. They lost 24 to 3. And the, the thing I'll remember about that game is after the game, I was leaving the press box to go downstairs, waiting online at the elevator. And ahead of us at the elevator was uh, none other, other than the comedian and longtime Jet fan, Larry David, one of the beat writers. I think it was Brian Costello of the Post said, Hey, Larry, what'd you think of the game? And without skipping a beat, perfect comedic timing, Larry's in such a sarcastic tone. He said, I couldn't have been more pleased. And we all got a laugh out of that. Uh, possibly a worse game, if you can believe it, was 2012 at MetLife. Maybe the worst quarterback game in NFL history. Mark Sanchez versus Ryan Lindley. They combined for two for 50 uh two for 20 for 52 which is really hard to believe and Sanchez ended up getting benched in that game and Greg McElroy came in it was his 15 minutes of fame somehow he led the Jets to a 7-6 victory although it didn't feel like a victory but maybe the most infamous Jet Cardinal game at all 1996 in Arizona it was at Sun Devil Stadium I was there it was uh, actually a victorious night for the Jets. They went in with an 0-8 record, and we're all thinking what we're thinking now. Can this team go 0-16? That, of course, was the Rich Kotite year. The Jets were quarterbacked in that game by Frank Reich. I remember the game vividly because I it's the night the Yankees won 
the World Series. And so I don't think too many New York sports fans were paying attention, but the Jets somehow pulled out a victory to end the schneid. And really from a coverage standpoint, it was not good for coverage because it ended the uh, so-called drama of going for 0-16. So they were 1-8, just another bad football team. And I remember the players telling me a few days later, in the team meeting the next day, Rich Kotite was actually trying to use that as a rallying point, telling the team that even at 1-8, and eight, they still had a chance to make the playoffs, not to give up. And they told me that they were kind of snickering to themselves in the meeting, rolling their eyes. And, of course, they went on to lose every one of the rest of their games to finish 1-15. Let's hope Sunday's game is a little bit more entertaining. Can the Jets win? Yeah, I think this is a winnable game. The Cardinals are 2-2. Two and two. They haven't played great, especially on offense. So their defense hasn't been great either. So, yeah, I think it's a winnable game. Will the Jets win? I don't think so. You're going to have Joe Flacco probably at quarterback. And uh, I just don't think the Jets are in a winning place right now. Too many mistakes, just too many things not good. So probably a Cardinals win. And we'll see if the Jets could, uh, how this 0-4 start is going to take us. But once again, thanks for joining the show. I'd like to thank my special guest, Marty Lyons, for joining us. Uh, thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin. Please rate and subscribe us. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, all of the ESPN platforms. Enjoy the game on Sunday, and we'll see you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.